thing is Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read from 1 verse 27 through chapter 2 verse 2. Try to keep in mind that Philippi was a colony of Rome. It was uh, it even affectionately called itself Little Rome. It was highly patriotic. In fact, it had a slew of retired military folks that lived there. It was quite proud of its position and its loyalties to Caesar. And so therefore would not broach anyone to claim that someone else was Lord. This was the place where Lydia of Thyatira was converted. This is the place where Paul and Silas were beaten to a smithereen because they liberated a girl from the spirit of Python and set her free and uh, her, her money-making masters were angry about it, beat her up, beat him up and threw him into prison. But this is the place where the Philippian jailer was converted, he and his household. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And so it's in that environment, notice that Paul is emphatic about how in that kind of environment, especially, we have to stand firm in one spirit side by side. And so starting in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same, same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And now we turn to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi 3, picking up at verse 13 as we Continue our series through Malachi that we're calling Uninvited. We're just picking up right where we left off, Malachi 3.13, that's page 802 in that blue Bible. And do keep your Bibles open there, you see what's going on. Here then is the Lord speaking, and he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord, before Yahweh of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared Yahweh, those who feared the Lord, spoke with one another. And Yahweh paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared Yahweh and esteemed his name, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What I've read to you from Philippians and what I've read to you from Malachi is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, who knows the difference between the righteous and the wicked, we implore your mercy to give us the emotional and attentive fortitude to hear what you say, knowing that you're speaking to us from the, the deep well, the aquifer of your love for us, displayed in the death of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. 
So there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide. Yes, there are only two points. So one of the things that we like in a referee, see how it's coming to the end of football season and bowl season is starting to kick in, and then the FIFA Cup or FIFA Cup, however you want to pronounce that, has just been going on. One of the things that we like in a referee is that they keep the games honest. And it boils our blood and swells our anger when refs make big mistakes. But worse, when they're as crooked as the players can be sometimes. Why? Because we want, we crave rectitude, some sense of rightness, fairness, righteousness, goodness. We, we want, we crave someone who is outside of us who will blow the whistle and throw the penalty flag but almost always, as long as they throw it against those other guys. Nevertheless, we do long for someone to keep the game honest. And God has been keeping the game honest in Malachi. And you'll notice here then that this oracle that began with God's love, for I have loved you, chapter 1, verse 2, is now beginning to conclude its focus on God's rectitude, his, his rightness, his goodness. But we immediately see that some, many, are actually turning God's rectitude upside down. And that's the first point. Turning God's rectitude upside down, verses 13 through 15. Now this is the final moment. If you haven't been here through the series, all I can tell you is just go back and listen to the sermon series that's online but this is the final moment where the people's curt and condescending demeanor toward God is dealt with. And notice God's words to them. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, says Yahweh. All through this oracle, this Massah, this burden of the word of Yahweh, all through this oracle, their questions and their queries have been hard words against the Lord. Because they don't want an answer. And I mentioned that last week. You need to remember that. There are lots of people that will ask you questions, maybe in your family and your kids and your neighbors and stuff. And many of them do want answers. They want to know if you're legit and if what you believe is consistent and so forth. But there are just as many people, sometimes maybe more, sometimes a little bit less, who are asking you questions because they don't want to know. They're asking you questions to keep you away. Like, John, when was, did you finally quit beating D? Right? That question is meant to push John away. I really don't want an answer. I want, to, I want to shut him down. And that's what's going on in Malachi. All of the people's questions are intended to shut God down, push him away, and sing with Alanis Morissette, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. Oh, an unfortunate slight. And so they are set in their ways of skepticism and scheming impervious with disbelief, indifferently dismissive, and impiously derisive toward God. How have we spoken against you, they ask here. Further, notice that with that question, how, this is how you know that question intends no answer. With that question then begin to come assertions. Assertions that God is impotent, that God is irrelevant, that God maybe is even possibly immoral. So verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? 
Now, that statement in verse 14 takes us back to the very last verse of chapter 2. The same kind of things were said in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You say, how have we wearied you? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? They're doing something similar again. It takes our minds back to chapter 2. And you remember chapter 2, verse 17 comes out because they have taken God's standard of marriage and they have flipped it inside out and they were, in verse 17, sassily sneering at God in that set of questions. And as I pointed out to us then, that the way that the people were acting toward marriage as God had designed it, the way they were acting toward marriage meant that they had opened, they were opening the Pandora's box unleashing a host of social evils and societal ills. Because that first order social relationship, marriage and family, that first order social relationship is tied to a passel of other social relationships. And so they're overturning God's rectitude and that first order relationship in marriage and in family is now becoming increasingly intensified. And look at how it comes out in verse 15. They're still being sassy and sneering at God. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Do you hear how they're turning this upside down? The God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? Oh, we don't care. We're going to call the arrogant blessed. The one who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go and punish. Proverbs 16, verse 5. We don't care. We're going to call the arrogant blessed. You hear how they've just turned everything upside down. And it, it just ripples throughout this social arrangement. In fact, they go on. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. My friends, it sounds so very contemporary. It sounds so 21st century-ish. From the religious leaders to the religiously led, God's rectitude has been turned inside out and upside down. Irreverent, profane, and bargain basement worship, chapter 1, 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. Irreverent, profane, and bargain basement treatment of marriage, chapter 2, verse 10 through 17. Irreverent, profane, and bargain basement social and sanctuary engagements, the first part of chapter 3. Irreverent, profane, and bargain basement ideas about money and profitability, that was last week's sermon. In a society, in a nation that we live in that seems to be in general revolt, Against God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, together as long as they both shall live. We feel the pressure of where, what's going on here. The same kind of demeanor and attitude here. Now, in all honesty, that revolt has been going on very pronouncedly and very obviously since the end of World War II. The glass ceiling shattered as all of our GIs came home. Well, it makes sense. Right? They've been deployed for years, and all of a sudden they come back and they want to, they have to be married. They're supposed to act like husbands and they come back. It's hard to do that. Anybody who's ever been on a deployment knows what one year will do to your marriage, speaking from experience. 
So here they come back after two, three, four years of of deployment. And then divorce starts just bursting at the seams. Ah, but they didn't just do that. Some of them had done things they weren't supposed to. Now I'm speaking from family history. A grandfather that I had who served under General Patton, who brought home his sexual liaisons and his infidelity and didn't stop when he came back to the U.S. soil. We broke the glass ceiling in reference to marriage at the end of World War II when all the GIs came home. We've been in general revolt against God's rectitude since then at least. And with that come a load of other social relationships and problems and revolts to include fatherlessness. The sense that I don't have to be committed to these kids and to this woman or whatever and I don't have to stay there with them and help raise them fatherlessness, or premarital and recreational sex, absent of all lifelong covenantal commitments, a revolt where God's rectitude appears to not only be scoffed at, by, but pressed against through the various social agencies and government bureaus, where the pressure feels like it, it's becoming more unmistakable against institutions and individuals that understand God's rectitude is true rectitude. It's not persecution, it's pressure. You're beginning to feel it and feel it around. That against institutions and individuals who still think that God's rectitude, his goodness, is really good. You begin to feel the pressure. And so we... Just like is going on in Malachi, we live in a society that has been in revolt against God and it starts primarily kind of consistently right there with that first order relationship and it begins to break out in other ways. Ah, but we Christians need to be careful. We cannot cross our arms and look down our noses at our topsy-turvy world. Because numerically and statistically, We have been just as much a part of the disease. The numbers of sexual abuse, cohabitation, and marital breakdown are almost identical inside Christian circles as they are outside. In so many ways, my friends, we need to get our own house in order instead of trying to fix the world. Too often we look like To them, to other people, we often look like the armchair quarterbacks and the lounge chair referees telling everybody else how they're to get right and fixed while we're sitting there slovenly, all soiled in our torn t-shirts with our empty beer cans scattered around our feet, so out of shape we couldn't even run a 10-yard sprint. That's what we look like. We need to get our own house in order. Well... That's the environment that this is being written in. And this is the people they are pushing back. You, you're unallowed, you're uninvited. And God says, your words have been hard against me. Ah, but there's a bright spot, verses 16 through 18. There are some who are taking God's rectitude right side up. Verses 16 through 18. Taking God's rectitude right side up. There's hopefulness here, verses 16 through 18, and there's also a subtle summons. So let me deal with the hopefulness first, and I'll come around towards the end to the subtle summons. So just work through very quickly, verse 16 through 18, and you will notice that hopefulness is described, first off, 
and the Lord's concentrating. The Lord's concentrating. The first part of verse 16. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them. The Lord's concentrating on this group who actually are saying, hey, we're messed up, we need help, we need to be fixed, we need you to work here, we fear you, we trust you, and we speak to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. The Lord concentrating. But then the Lord cataloging. It's the rest of verse 16 into verse 17. The Lord cataloging. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared Yahweh and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So concentrating, cataloging, and then finally classifying, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those, the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The classifying. So there's a lot of hopefulness in this passage. So let's take a step back for a minute and let's work at then and come back at it very quickly. Maybe, maybe not so quickly. I'm a preacher. What do I know? First off, notice in verse 16, it's those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Do you see it there? Now, of course, this is in a day when there's not podcasters. There's not Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and social media. There's not even any electronic or very much print media. And so when it says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, it means they actually got together and they talked to each other. They didn't talk at one another. They didn't talk against one another. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. In an environment that is stormy, in an environment that is that is very likely to tear them apart. What do they do? They get together and they speak to one another. It's very much a close fellowship going on here. Mutual support and measured sucker. Sucker means aid. Mutual support and measured sucker. Those who fear the Lord spoke to one another rather than rugged individualism. It's kind of what the Apostle Paul told young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. And I appreciate this is in the pastoral epistles because being a minister can be a very lonely business. So listen to what Paul told young Pastor Timothy. So flee youthful passions. Now there's a whole sermon waiting to happen here on what what are those youthful passions. But so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Notice what Paul is telling Timothy. Be like Joseph who ran from Potiphar's wife as she drew near to him and tried to tempt him. Flee and run away from it. Right? So flee youthful passions, but you've got to go somewhere. And so Paul tells him where to go. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. But he doesn't say go out there and pursue it as a lone ranger, as a standalone Christian, off all on your own. He says go pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's what's going on in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. They're pursuing these things together. They're speaking to one another in mutual support and building each other up. Now, our Western inclination is to be all about rugged individualism. You know what that is. 
It's when we say, oh, I got this. I can do this on my own. I don't need your help, and I don't need no help of organized religion. You know what I mean? But that's not Bible. That's not gospel. Even King Solomon, back in around 960 B.C., somewhere around in there, warned us in Proverbs 18, verse 1, as he was guiding, he said, whoever isolates himself, whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 18, 1, you can apply that to a lot of things, from dating to what you're doing on line on your computer to all kinds of things because that's how it's meant but whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire breaks out against sound judgment sober-mindedness so what happens here in malachi 3 16 is very much new testament thinking the way that we're going to survive this squall the way that we're going to make it through and weather through this storm is by standing side by side and arm in arm, not eating our young, not devouring fellow Christians and spitting their, out their bones. We've got to stand together, those who fear the Lord, spoke to one another. That's what Paul says. Take it up with Paul if you don't like it. But he says in Philippians chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Notice how the gospel of Jesus is the very centerpiece of what I'm talking about. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come or I'm absent, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now we like to stop right there. That you're standing firm. Yeah, I'm standing firm. I don't know about West, but I'm standing firm. Right? We want to stop there, but that's not where Paul stops. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Notice that. Standing together and not being frightened by your opponents. And then Paul says this. You're standing side by side with one another and not being frightened by them is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that the gift of God. That Malachi 3.16, that first part, those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, is all New Testament. It's all gospel at its very, very heart. So they were taking God's rectitude right side up. Those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. And so then here comes the Lord's promise to those who fear Him, to those who esteem His name together, that He paid attention and heard them. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it. It's very simple. It means he turned his face toward them and gave them his full concentration. I was eating lunch this last week with someone. I won't tell you his name, so I don't want to embarrass him. But I was eating lunch with him, and there were these people from another country sitting behind him, and they all got up to walk away. And he was talking to me, and I looked, and I turned my face to follow them out because it was really weird. Right? I mean, they just looked really weird to me. And so he says to me, oh, oh, I guess you're done talking to me. No, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So I had to turn my face back around, right? That's what's going on here. He turned his face to them. He paid attention to them. That's the promise. That's the hopefulness of this. He turns his face toward his people and gives us his full concentration. And so to make sure that they knew that he knew, 
to make sure that they knew that he knew that he would never forget them. He catalogs them in his forever book. A book of remembrance was written before him and finally assures them to make that he makes a clear distinction. He knows the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Even though they dress the same, even though they all shop at Crest or Homeland, even though they may all be Republicans or all be Democrats or all be Libertarians or whatever, he knows the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And so he classifies his people. And in other words, my friends, he can tell the difference and he can deal with his people differently. That's the hopefulness. In verses 16 through 18, the hopefulness for those who take God's rectitude right side up, for those who have ceased throwing out their hands like their society is doing, and have ceased throwing out their hands saying, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. These are those who know the God who said, for I have loved you. These are those who who have found refuge in the God who said in chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. These are those who have heeded his gracious bidding. Return to me, verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you. And they heard him and they returned. Lastly, notice here the subtle summons. And the summons, the subtle summons is actually to the people of verses 13 through 14 whose words have been hard against the Lord. So the... Your your words have been hard against me because you're asking these questions and you're turning my rectitude upside down. And then comes verses 16 to 18. There's a connection here. And the subtle summons is like this. These folks here in verses 16 to 18, they have not sunk into the miry pit of your disbelief, verses 13 to 15. These are the ones that I hear. These are the ones that I take note of. And so here's the summons. So listen to me. No matter how often you've put your hand out and you've resisted and you've asked questions you didn't intend me to answer, I am making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The moment is before you. Which side of that line will you be? It's a subtle summons. My friends, it's the same summons that our Lord Jesus brought with him. When our Lord was born, it was echoed subtly. It was echoed in the night sky, in the hearing of the shepherds. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy for all the people, but not all the people will receive it as great news. Christ The Lord? The Sovereign? No, Caesar is king. Some would not receive it as great news. So there's a subtle summons, even from the words of the angels. And then it goes on, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly... There was with an angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." Who are those with whom He is pleased? Is it those who continue to push their hands out at Him, saying, "No, you're uninvited," or is it those who have heard His call 
Return to me and I will return to you. Because for them, this is good news. There's a subtle summons that Jesus himself brought with him on that first Christmas day. You heard it if you were paying attention before our confession of sin from John 3, 16 through, I think, 21. Everybody loves John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever lives, whoever believes shall uh, have everlasting life, etc. But that passage goes on. The Lord came in, Jesus comes as light to the world, and some people don't like the light. Just like that, those cockroaches in your kitchen, you know, when you turn the lights on in your kitchen, what do those cockroaches do? They scamper off. At least my cockroaches do. Some people don't want the light. But it's a summons. There's hope if you will but turn. And so that's the subtle summons. There's one final application. I want you to think back and look back at verse 18. Notice how the Lord says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Distinction. Keep that phrase in mind. I love the way our book of church order, I know that most of you are not you know, big Presbyterians, what's a book of church order? It's a procedural manual on how we function as a church, and towards the end of it, it has a section on baptism, and I love the way it puts it. For rightly it says, those who are baptized, quote, are solemnly received into the bosom of the visible church, distinguished from, are you hearing it? Distinguished from, the world and them that are without and united with believers. A distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the wicked, those who serve God and those who don't. Distinguished from the world and them that are without and united with believers. And then it goes further and it says, those all who are baptized in the name of Christ under the authority of Christ do renounce and by their baptism are bound to fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh. Baptism, Christian baptism is the portrayal of verse 18. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who don't. It's a portrayal. It's a picture. It's a docudrama. Or whatever. And today we get to see that being played out at this baptism. And so I'm going to ask Rachel England to come up here. Let me tell you about Rachel, and then we're going to all turn to 846 in our hymn books for the Nicene Creed, and we are all going to get together, profess our faith. Rachel grew up in a Christian family, and she's been coming to church here. She hangs out with Maddox, of all things. Anyways, she hangs out with Maddox and with the Willinghams, and... She's been coming here for a year, and she says to me a couple of weeks ago, she goes, what do I need to do? I've never been baptized. What do I need to do? And I was like, you know me. I, I'm always calm and cool. And so we worked that out and met uh, Trent and, and his wife and, and talked with them and uh, been to their house. And so today, um, Rachel's coming for baptism. The session I talked with her this morning, and we had a great interview with her. Our, the thing that sticks out of my head is when she said, you know, I knew early on at age three that I was a sinner and I was in need of Jesus. What a great statement. And that's what we're 
doing here. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask her and me, we're all going to do this together. We're going to turn to 846, to the Nicene Creed. I'm going to ask you to stand. And then after the Nicene Creed, I'll have you seat, sit, sit, and then I will ask her the rest of the questions. So let's, together, what do we believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Do you believe those things? Yes, all right. So these are our membership questions that if you are a member of PCA Church, you've said yes to these questions. Rachel, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope, except in His sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the fo a follower of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Amen. And so, just as on Acts 2, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that says three times that Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit by pouring out the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pour out some water on Rachel. I told her she's going to get all wet. You're going to go under the water, and you're going to get all wet. So, there it is, okay? Doing what I can to help her here. So, let me pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of grace that portrays for us again that you make a distinction, you know your own. We are grateful for this moment, for Rachel's baptism. We pray, Lord, that you would fill her with your spirit, you would sustain her and hold in your hand all the days of her life. We ask you now to take this water that is a common water and that you would set it aside for the sacred use that what we do here on earth, Lord, you may say amen to in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Rachel, our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And so go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, based on our Lord Jesus' command and under his authority, I now baptize you, Rachel and England, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Rachel, you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life which you now live in the flesh, live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for Rachel. I pray that you would go with her wherever she goes, that she would always know that you were with her. Thank you, Lord, for holding her, for calling her by name, for naming her your child. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.